If only everyone could know the technical difficulties that we had before recording this episode. We're still not even sure if we are recording this episode. (laughs) We'll find out in about an hour. The listeners live in this state of euphoria where all the problems that we encounter doing this don't matter. Yeah. You ever just do an entire project and you get to the very end and it just wasn't even recorded or something was wrong the whole time and you just spent like an entire day? That was my whole year in college, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I have done a couple podcasts before where I realized halfway through, I did one, I used to do one that was, you know, all in the same room. So I had multiple Mm -hmm. mics going in one interface and um, I realized halfway through that both channels were just recording me. Mm. So we had done half of an entire podcast just recording one person, one side of a two-person <laughs> conversation. <laughs> so, yeah. That's rough. So Things I knew happen. pretty much immediately when I started hanging out with Jake. I think actually, Nick, didn't you, you kind of introduced us, right? Because you guys were... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we go way back. Um, I pretty much knew right away that as cool as Jake was, that he was definitely that guy in the project that everybody else was relying on to actually get it done. (laughs) (laughs) And that I was the guy that was like, so uh, what were we working on again? Like the day before. But I really appreciate it about you. And I appreciate that Nick is kind of this weird hybrid. Yeah, I have a very focused, uh, specific set of skills. And outside (laughs) of that, I do not operate well. I have a very specific set of skills. <laughs> I will find you. <laughs> I was thinking the other day, though, um, just uh, I think I was talking to one or both of you about this project that we're working on, and I was like overcome by frustration due to the fact that whenever I learn anything, I have to learn every like finite detail of how everything works. And so I'm just like constantly overwhelmed with information. And then you guys are not necessarily that way. <laughs> so I'll, I'll come to you talking like very technical lingo, all things that I've learned within the last like 24 hours. So I don't really know what any of it means, <laughs> but I, I make the mistake of just using a lot of jargon. And then <laughs> I feel like I lose you guys like almost immediately and we miscommunicate because of that. So I I've mean, been trying to do better about like not just regurgitating information that I've read, but actually understanding what I'm talking about. Do you feel like you retain it better when you read it or when somebody tells you? Like, do you learn better absorbing it? Um, I think I typically learn better through like visuals and hearing. So like I learn really well through like YouTube videos, but if yeah. I'm reading an article, um, it has to be something I'm super interested in for me to really yeah. retain any of it. Yeah. I'm kind of that same vain except i don't retain anything i read at all like it's it's ridiculous it's stupid i remember in college having to read things for assignments or anytime they give us a project where there was reading involved i just i could literally read the same thing 10 times over and not retain it but if i heard one sentence one time during a lecture i would remember the entire thing Mm. and i think that's what translated into me playing by ear like mm. musically, because I don't read music. I just, I can just hear and then I play along or whatever. But 
Yeah. I don't know if there's a disconnect there or what. Maybe I got some wires loose when I was born. Yeah, there's definitely, no. I think, two kinds of people that that make music. And it's probably the same way with work. I mean, a lot of people are kind of firing from the hip, which I would consider myself that. And then there's a lot of people that are aiming down sights, you know, trying mm. to. But the same thing with music. I mean, I, but the weird part about it and our personalities is that when it comes to music, I'm actually more of the aim down sights guy. Like I'm more on the theory side and the reading the music and mm-hmm. and we kind of knew I think that one of us was going to have to do that because when you play with a band you obviously can't just say like you know man like it feels like a, a <laughs> like you go up here you know it's got to be yeah. like we're going to go to the G and then we're going to hit the E minor and you know mm-hmm. got to have all your timings and everything down so it's always been a cool part about playing together is that Nick can I can already know what he's thinking and feeling when we're writing and stuff or when we're at rehearsal, and then I can translate that to the band. And I think kind of our roles on stage kind of translates that too, you know? I mean, he's my translator. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Your fixer. (laughs) I've always wanted to be a fixer. Kind of Jake's fixer too. I'm everybody's fixer. Dude, you don't fix anything that I do. I do everything you say. Oh, is that what a fixer means? Fixer is just like, I got this problem, cinch it up. And I'm like, okay. Same with me. Oh, you, guys, you guys are the brainiacs. You guys are, as I'm the smallest one and I'm the brawn of all this. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought you, when you said fixer, I thought you meant you like, like fix everyone else's solved. mistakes or something. I'm um, like, no, bro. Well, I ain't leaving you any mistakes to fix. <laughs> no, that's I what I really like. Says the perfectionist. I like working with you guys both because usually, when you are ready to pass some work on, it's pretty buttoned up already. So it's not like you're handing somebody like spaghetti without a plate kind of thing. It's like <laughs> <laughs> there's spaghetti, some structure to it. Spaghetti in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. I kind of feel like I have a. It's all sectioned out and everything. Yeah, well, that's probably good. It's a good sign of a well-oiled machine, right? That's so far. I mean, what are we, how many episodes in are we? Nine now? I think this one will be ten. Oh, what? We got to have yep. a celebration. Cheers, fellas. Yeah. Take a minute. Let's, everyone take a moment of silence. So, Dunk. what we wanted to uh, kind of talk about Speaking of music, speaking of the way we work together on stage, and um, we wanted to kind of talk about our our influences that uh, kind of got us where we are now, but also stuff we've been listening to, which is something that I think we're always, it was really nice today because Spotify had their rap, mm-hmm. right? So I always say that's, like one of my favorite days of the year because I mm-hmm. can steal all these bands from all these people's <laughs> stories, you know, you know. Right. Did you have any surprises in yours this year? Um, <laughs> my number five on one through five was the Talbot Brothers. <laughs> yep. And uh, I realized that's because... Wow. That is because whenever Nick and I are making the set list, like throughout the year when we were making a set list, is mm-hmm. it 2020 though? Yeah. The rap. No. I mean, 
The the wrap is for 2020, yeah. Okay, well, I guess probably before we left for that first tour we did at the beginning of the year, but uh, we listened to our music and like determine keys and write the set list. Mm-hmm. And we're always going back like when we're on the road or even when we're together and be like, what was that? What was uh, Dead Man Pass? What key was that in? And so we'll play it and then we play with it. Yeah. And so I realized how frequently we're playing our tracks on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and- dude, I do the same thing. Like, uh, I think this year is the first year in a long time that Talbot Brothers was not one of my top three. Because Ooh. normally when I'm practicing, like I use the Spotify tracks to practice with, you yeah. know. Um, not a lot of shows happened this year, though. <laughs> right, not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's weird. Did you have any surprises, Jake? Not really. Um, I, I mean, I had kind of forgotten about some of the bands that I listened to early on in the year. So, like, um, right when the shutdown happened, I was listening to a lot of, like, the Black Keys. Like, mm. I listened to the song... I learned this through the wrap-up thing i listened to the song lonely boy like 15 times in three days oh yeah (laughs) i don't know sometimes i i like latch on to a good song and i just play it on repeat until i i'm sick of it yeah i did that with that song and that to me that felt like uh, a year ago that feels like so long ago to me um yeah so i kind of forgot about that the black keys were one of my top five and i feel like i haven't listened to them in a long time but the thing about the wrap up that always bums me out is my the stuff that I listen to in the gym is not the kind of music that I just casually listen to. It's like screamo music, you right. know, which right. I I like it, but I don't sit around and listen to it. So I right. can't really share my wrap up playlist with anyone unless I know that they're into that kind of thing cuz like every third or fourth song is like Under Oath or August Burns Red mixed in with like this singer-songwriter mixed in with like uh, lo-fi stuff but yep um this year i i normally don't listen to playlists like i like to listen to full albums but this year i got into um lo-fi music quite a bit and it told me that i had discovered 750 new artists this yeah. year <laughs> yeah mine was nuts too just because I, I listened to this playlist that have exactly. like one minute songs from yep. just like people in their basement posting lo-fi tracks you know yeah so. Yeah, it's that's why kind of my number five genre was K-pop. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, no, not K-pop. Co- Korean R and B, which I'm guess I'm guessing <laughs> just better. came from the lo-fi stuff. But my oh, actually, probably. my top five actually made a lot of sense. I mean, I guess other than the Talbot Brothers, but mm. my top, my top four mm-hmm. uh, was David Ramirez, who I would love to talk about some more so i'm gonna make a note about him real quick while i'm speaking yep. uh Montaigne was number two which i'm kind of surprised because i feel like i'm listening to him all the time and he just came out with a new record this year so i figured mm. he'd be my number one and i felt mm. like his his record that he released this year was kind of more a return to form for him so mm-hmm. i was kind of surprised that he wasn't my number one but mm-hmm. then number three was noah gunderson and then number four was CCR. And those are, I mean, I would, if anyone asked me, I'd probably say those are my top four favorite artists. Nice. You know, I, I think a lot of like the classic rock influence that we have in our music that most people probably don't hear nowadays, but maybe when we first started playing, mm-hmm. I think a lot of that comes from CCR. I think yeah. 
back when I was in college, I got like their greatest hits and it was like 20 songs, you know, like their best songs, whoever decides that, you know, right. probably their label or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the, I, wonder, I always wonder how that works. Yeah. I always, I always hoped it was like somebody's wife or something, you know, like these are my favorite songs. It's like, probably just based on popularity, John, like which John, one sold the most copies yeah. or whatever. But John Fogarty is one of my favorite singers of all time because he just has like that really, I want to know. Yeah. Have you ever seen? It's so like unique and you know, like right when that song starts that this is like a CCR song. You know? Yeah. And anyway, that they were kind of a big influence when I was younger. And then um, I, they, I listen to them a lot at the gym or when I'm running. Um, hmm. Which is yeah, they they have some bangers for sure. Yeah, but I do. was kind, of, but I was kind. Of, I thought he'd be up. I thought they'd be up further, and then maybe really Montaigne will be on top. But mine made sense totally. I laughed really hard when I saw that uh, my own band was number five, <laughs> though, because I was like, well, I can't share this. Yeah, you know? I wonder how common that is though among artists that have their own music on Spotify. Probably right. right. Yeah, it's weird because I feel like when we do a project, I don't hardly ever listen back to it just to listen, but mm. it's only for like work, you know, transitions on stage or right. like Ty said, building cellists and stuff. But it really does surprise me how often it comes up in my like, you know, if you're playing through a, a, a list of songs and suddenly like your own song comes on, and you're like, wait a sec. Yeah. And it starts to filter in like to related artists and things like that. But then mm -hmm. I just end up feeling conceited. So I'd, tra I'd change the track. <laughs> yeah. As long as you don't just like casually listen to it. Um, right. Or like if you're at somebody's house. Forgivable. You're like, hey, yeah, I'll put on a playlist. And you like, you know, you hook your phone up to their Bluetooth and you're playing a bunch of songs and then suddenly your own song comes on. And you're like, mm -hmm. oh, I didn't mean to do this. And they mm -hmm. look at you like, right. Yeah. That's the worst. That's always a bummer. Dude, I have a question. Jake, how did you even get started with music? Like what what was the thing that made you be like, I want to play drums. I want to, because you play guitar too a little bit. Yeah. Like when I, mean, I knew you when you were younger, I feel like that's, yeah, like so, we used to play guitar in your basement. <laughs> my musical career started on the guitar. Um, I don't know. I, I had I had always been interested in music, like, even though he, he's not musical at all, like my dad had a huge impact on me wanting to learn how to play music because yeah. he was like, we always used to listen to the like oldies radio station, you know, so we listened to a lot of CCR and a lot of those, you know, really good old school bands. And I don't know, he was always just rocking out to that kind of stuff. And I always really liked the music. And I, I always took to just like picking apart the which parts of the songs I liked. And whenever we would go to like football games or parades when I was really young or whatever, um, whenever the marching bands would go by, I was just like enthralled with the percussion for some reason. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to play, play an instrument. And then the, the movie School of Rock came out with Jack Black. And yes. I, I really think that's what kicked it off for me because I saw how cool all those kids were like playing guitar yeah. in this band. And I was like, that, that's what I want to do. So, uh, I eventually started taking guitar lessons and I took guitar lessons for like eight years. Um, Oh, I didn't know that for having taken guitar lessons for that long. I never got really all that good, but, <laughs> um, well, you yeah, found the drums. 
I took guitar lessons for a long time. And then um, I was in middle school band and stuff. I played the saxophone for a couple of years and decided that if I was going to stay in band, I wanted to do percussion because I was really into, you know, that, I don't know, I've always been attracted to rhythm more than melody for whatever reason. Um, it's always been easier for me to conceptualize than to think yeah. of like, know what key I'm in and think of what notes I'm able to play in that key based on the chord that's that's playing or whatever. So in um, band, were you guys the, did you have the snare that set up on the stand and you had to stand up and play it? Mm -hmm. Like what was your, yeah, I mean, when I first started, so I I moved over to percussion my eighth grade year, and it was like this whole this whole thing. Like, they made it so much drama because technically you were supposed to have had at least two years of piano training to play percussion, which mm -hmm. didn't make sense to me because you're just hitting. Like, I had better rhythm than most of the people in the percussion uh, ensemble. But the reason they did that is because of all the keyboard instruments. But like, uh -huh. I was super good at reading music because I. Um, played guitar and I, I like learned the bass clef really quickly because I for some reason have always been good at being able to read music um, so I don't know I just like I convinced the instructor to let me do it and I just started doing it so I, I played like the not important parts for the long longest time like triangle and auxiliary percussion stuff but uh, that kind of just kicked off me like getting a drum set a couple years later in high school and I was on drumline in high school, so I developed some technical ability through that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Drums, drums is mostly self-taught for me. Like the actual drum lessons, drum set application. No, I never did. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've done some online lessons, basically just learning through courses that a teacher mm -hmm. puts up. And I had a mentor for a little bit, but it was never like private lessons. It was it was kind of a different yeah. experience, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I that was know that. that was a lot, a lot in a nutshell. But I grew up listening to like my biggest influences when I was learning was like, like Breaking Benjamin and Green mm -hmm. Day and all these like yes. angsty, like heavy, punk, you know, punk weird stuff that I I learned how to play all that on guitar before I had ever trans transitioned anything to the drums. So yeah. Um, my influences have, have varied widely depending on what season of my life I, I was yeah. in. Yeah, you kind of been all over the board with, with stuff too. That's kind of like Ty and I, like we grew up, our dad, you know, he played guitar for a while before, you know, before we were old enough mm. um, to even realize that he played guitar. But we found his old acoustic guitar in the basement and uh, yeah, he had a record collection and stuff and our mom is really into music too. So the house, there was just always music playing somewhere um, mm -hmm. of some kind, like dad was in classic rock and then also like Beatles, Beach Boys, Johnny Cash, right. um, CCR, that too. And then mom was like, she listened to everything like pop, country, like singer, songwriter. And then it was just this conglomeration of styles that we were always around. I think it was hard for us to kind of pick like, you know, you always hear people say like, oh, what genre of music? And I think we've always had a hard time with that because we grew up around so many kinds that Right. We were like, why do we have to just do one thing? You know, mm -hmm. and Tyler, you know, I had a band in um, middle school and we were terrible. But <laughs> as we, most uh, of them are, all yeah. middle school bands, mine was terrible too. Dude, yeah. So we played like punk rock, like Blink 182, Mest, Sugar Colt, Good Charlotte, like all these bands that are like, Mest. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. Bands you don't even know. <laughs> uh, and so we were playing all this stuff in uh, one of the buildings that my my best friend growing up across the way had. And uh, Tyler came over once and we we're all trying to sing and play and stuff. Tyler comes up, grabs the mic, starts singing. And we just all kind of look at each other and like, well, shit, I guess. I guess we have to let him hang out with us now. <laughs> yeah. The only one that can sing is your younger brother. <laughs> right. And then he ended up picking up guitar too. And then it was kind of a, it was a weird thing because he's left-handed and everybody's like, just play right-handed. And he's like, he stuck to his guns and he's like, no. And so I couldn't ever play any of his guitars. We couldn't ever really like <laughs> learn from each other. Yeah. So we were both well, self-taught. But I mean, Nick kind of got me jump-started on guitar actually you know when a right-handed guitar player is teaching a left-handed guitar player you're kind of mirroring each other mm-hmm. so it, True. for me i guess it kind of made sense and um he only i mean we only ever stopped when we both got super frustrated with but that was really the the most amount of time that he and i had spent together like doing something constructive you know other mm-hmm. than like snowball fights or building forts, you know, that was like, (laughs) yeah, that was like the first time that we were actually working towards something. But after he taught me pretty much everything he could, which is like one note, (laughs) (laughs) then I started doing the same thing he did. And we just kind of locked ourselves in our rooms, you know, I, I feel like our entire, especially before high school, you know, before you get super busy with all that extracurricular stuff, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like we both kind of just locked ourselves in our rooms. And I remember coming home from school, even when Nick was in high school. And because he played football, but um, other than that, he, he was always playing music. And so I remember coming home from practice or whatever, and then coming to Nick's room. And he always had, you guys, you remember lava lamps? Did you ever have one? <laughs> I never. I think my sister had one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the nineties, man. That'd have been right. But that was a that was a good Christmas gift I put to use. Nick had a lava lamp, and then he had one of those lamps that had like the multicolored heads on it that could go all different ways, you know. And then um, he had like an old what was it like a stoplight, like a I was like a weird motion sensitive well, <laughs> stoplight, green, yellow, and red. I, I I was about to move on to your sound. You had like a custom oh. PA. Yeah, oh, custom was the brand, not uh, not custom. like it was made custom, custom with a K. <laughs> oh, I forgot about K. that brand. It was yeah, like yeah. a fifty dollar PA system, um, and I got it at garage sale. And then, yeah, I had this beat up electric guitar I found at this pawn shop in Colorado, and yep. was pretending I was putting on a concert every night. Well, I would come in. And, I would come in after a practice or whatever and Nick would be in there playing like three doors down or something. <laughs> which everything he we played and listened to before, I never really, you know, I would just sing with them because it felt cool to be in a band. But, you right. know, when you're listening to like Sugar Cole and Mest and like Blink-182, especially in the early days, it's like, what the hell are these guys even talking about? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know? Uh, but kind of changed three doors down was cool for me because i felt like okay this is a rock band but these lyrics are actually kind of meaningful like away from the sun that's like literally mm. one of, still that's one a, of my favorite songs that's a good one yeah. i remember that 
but and even like Matchbox Twenty and some yep, of those, you started kind of same. crossing into more pensive lyrics matched yep. with this rock. So, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I'd come in, and then Nick would be like playing away from the sun or something, and and he'd be on the mic and he'd be singing great. But then I was I would jump on the mic, and then he would be able to kind of loosen up and work on guitar stuff. We were literally just blasting the actual like MP3. Yeah, through speakers, yeah, and then pl- playing along with it. And My parents loved us. Yeah, really loved us. <laughs> dude, I re- I always think about like how tolerant my parents were of <laughs> yeah. a drum set, dude. dude of it. Well, I used to, animal. dude. I used to play my guitar <laughs> super loud, and I didn't have like good headphones to because there was always a headphone jack on your amp, right? Like this right. is back in the day when. Like we didn't have any good gear, so we we're always just kind of jerry rigging everything together to get yeah. to get sound <laughs> as loud as we could. So I tried to like plug just regular MP3 headphones into my guitar amp, and it sounded terrible. Obviously, yeah, pretty sure I blew them up or something. So <laughs> I was always just cranking everything loud, and I used to play guitar like in the living room and my yeah. uh, like electric guitar and yeah, i don't know dude like, as long as it wasn't too early in the morning or too late at night they didn't care like they liked it because yeah they're they just like music and except for when i was playing like trying to play like metal guitar yeah <laughs> i was usually playing <laughs> playing like blues or stuff that they actually liked to listen to so yeah right but yeah when i moved to drums i mean for the longest time i just had an electric drum set so um, they would only have to put up with like thumping through the through the floor because my bedroom was up high. Um, but in when I was right? yeah, in headphones, I didn't I didn't even have a speaker for that. But once I moved, um, I got an acoustic kit when I was in college finally, and full cymbals and everything. And um, this was you know I was seven, probably eighteen or nineteen at the time, and I would go back to my parents' house from college to play this drum set, and I'm pretty sure. My mom hated me for that. <laughs> they never told me to stop, you know, like, uh, supportive. Like, I, they've seemed supportive, dude. Yeah. I mean, I was always shocked because, especially when you're practicing, like, practicing stuff on drums, drums by themselves are not easy to listen to. But then also <laughs> when you're like working something out, it's, you can't even like groove to it because it's like, yeah, just painful. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, start, I really stopping and starting over and over. Right. Why, I really why don't know it, how they did it, but. Why does it feel like we were always rehearsing at your parents' house? Because we were. <laughs> we, they moved once, right? And I remember being in that first house and yeah. rehearsing a lot. And then the second. Yeah. Well, why? it was probably because, maybe because you weren't able to come to Omaha or two. Well, when we lived in Kearney still, we didn't really have the space. Right. So that was probably why we did that. And then mm-hmm. when... Nick and I moved to Omaha. Um, you were in Lincoln, and so that was only like forty minutes or so to yeah. your parents' place. We when you guys were in Omaha, I went there though. Yeah, yeah that's true. I just left. Yeah, the drum, yeah, yeah. I left the drum set there. But yeah, once, yeah. when you guys moved to Portland, is when I brought the drum set back to my parents' yeah. house, and that's when their lives changed forever. There yeah. was one time I remember my dad was like, "I've heard a lot of drums in my life, but I have never heard any drums like that." When I was, <laughs> I was like trying to work out this like pat, like pretty complicated pattern that I was learning, and you know, start and stop, and just fumbling all over it. And I was, that's when You're I decided like to <laughs> to start working things out on the electric kit before I moved it to performance mode. So, 
Yeah. You're like, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or... Oh, it was... <laughs> I knew it was not a compliment because he was laughing when he said it. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy to think how we all kind of had different uh, experiences with just like growing up around music, but we've all kind of had similar taste, even though all mm. of us have such a wide range of interests. Like mm -hmm. the influences that each of us have are kind of similar, but we've all grown up around so much stuff. I feel like that's maybe what helps us on stage. Like even when we get together or in the studio, um, it seems like we can calibrate with each other pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And maybe it just comes from digesting so many types of music that whatever we're yeah. making together kind of seems like a, almost like its own genre um yeah branched off of all that stuff i mm -hmm. know i i it seems like i always come back to it and talk about it in different facets of what we're doing together but i really feel like there's something to how different we are from each other but the same in so many ways and you know, I people always talk about um, like their spouse or their significant other. You know, they'll always say, well, you know, she was just like me, so it didn't work out, right? Mm -hmm. Because you mm -hmm. you can't love yourself at the end of the day. You know, you like, you can't <laughs> yeah. be in love with the female version of you. I yeah. mean, I couldn't. I'm, yeah, sure, I'm right. sure some people can. But I think there's something to like those opposites attract. And then um, if you have enough commonality and interests which we all have had you know uh, basically all three of us love the same things you know we mm -hmm. we keep track of um, current events and i mean you guys you guys talk about politics with me and i feel that you just do that because you care about me but then yeah. uh music and electronics and movies entertainment you know the i know that feels like that's all the things but there's yeah. a lot of people that don't uh work well together because they're a lot, they're very different, but they have no common ground. And so I feel like the best part about making music with people is when everybody can kind of step into their role and respect one another for what they're doing, you know? And mm. um, I mean, Jake, you know this better than anybody. Nick and I have always had a hard time letting people in on our process mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's not just the fact that you've been there for a long time. You know, we always say that, like, oh, you were there from the beginning, you know. Right. I've known a lot of people for a long time that I would never let me tell, tell me how to write a song, you know. Right. But it's kind of like that trust and that give and take, especially with a band and on stage where you're trusting someone's opinion or someone might say, let's change this bridge or, you know, let's not just do ooze for the chorus or something like that. Mm -hmm. We can do better than that. And you're always kind of pushing each other, which I, I love. There's two kinds of musicians almost, kind of the guys that you hire and say, you play your part, it's already set, mm -hmm. you're doing exactly what's on the recording. And then there's the kind of guys that you get together with and you're like molding ideas and mm -hmm. even writing songs and... um you know, Nick and I have only ever, it's only ever been Nick and I, and it's not necessarily a good thing that it's always mm. been that way because we tend to get tunnel vision and especially the, as the years have gone on and the more we work with each other, we start to see very, we have a very similar mindset, mm -hmm. you know. And even then we you have- You think we have a similar mindset? I was just going to say, even then we have a ton of different influences like 
Nick is kind of the last couple of years been the one that has brought me in on more of like a pop. Like I've been listening to a lot of Harry Styles lately. Yeah. And I never thought I would, but I love his new record. And mm-hmm. Nick was kind of the one that. You, you know, showed me that record. I know, but that's what I'm saying. Nick was like, hey, you need to just listen to Taylor Swift's new record because you need to know what's going on. It's in true. The music world right now. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just listen to Radio Montaine on repeat. Yeah. I mean, and I do, <laughs> but that's the best part about it is that getting, having people around you, and, and I think especially with what we do, pushing your boundaries and broadening your horizons is, is really important. And it's, it's way more fun. You mm-hmm. know, it'd be, it, it's fine to record a bunch of songs and write a bunch of songs that are like acoustic crooner, singer, songwriter, but there's a million of us, right? Right. And that's probably what I would do if it was just me, but I'd probably kind of get lost in the sea. Mm-hmm. And so when I work with you guys and, you know, Nick specifically too, um, there is this kind of broadening that happens. And Jake, you've always been, you've always been listening to like Benny Grib and like all, all yeah, these guys that are listen on the fringe. To a, a lot of experimental stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. So I was one of those kids in high school that refused to listen to pop music because, (laughs) you know, I was trying so hard to be a hipster or whatever, you know. Um, But I'm, you know, I listen to a lot of pop music now. Just recently, like within the last probably two or three years, I've really come around on it. But um, I'm really glad that I took the route to it that I did because I have this, I have this way deeper appreciation for like highly technical music but i also developed an ear like it it trained my ear in a way that i feel like people that just passively listen to pop music never never get so i can hear things in pop music and say oh he's doing this like you know he's playing a bossa groove here or they're doing this like polymeter or because there's little things like in the background that producers will throw into pop music like ear Mm -hmm. candy stuff and I catch on to that stuff more than I catch on to like whatever the the artist is singing about. And like, mm-hmm. you know, these little synth runs that are five over four or something and they don't perfectly repeat. That's the stuff that I latch on to. But mm-hmm. yeah, I've always listened to like Benny Greb was a huge influence for me. Um, for those who don't know, he's just a freaking beast on the drums. But <laughs> um, just like super... I will never be able to play the kind of stuff that he plays, but the thing that he has influenced me on the most is playing intentionally. So mm. like he, um, he's really well known for some of his education, that stuff that he's done with just like internalizing the pulse and always understanding where you are in time. And then, um, you know, never playing anything that you feel like you're not in control of. And that was, that was a very new concept for me when I, when I heard that, cause I was used to, throwing on my favorite jam and just playing, you know, and not really caring where things lined up or being in control of the song. But, um, had I not been trying to be a hipster and like listening to all these weird bands or whatever, I would have never come across him. And, um, that opened a whole new door of influences that I have now that have very similar mindsets. Like I, I listen a lot to, listen to a lot of John Mayer and of course Steve Jordan um, is oh, a killer man. drummer, but his so o- other drummer, um, Aaron Sterling is the same yes. way where they, they just have this incredible sense of time and awareness of what's going on in the song and never playing, never playing anything for themselves. Right. That was something yeah. I had to learn. Like even, 
early on when I was playing with you guys, I was thinking a lot about what can I play that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in the last, I don't know, few years or so, I could care less about what I'm yeah. playing. If it, <laughs> you know, if, if the overall experience is hindered by what I'm playing, like it shouldn't be played. And that's something that I learned from those guys and playing with touch and playing with time. And um, yeah, there's a lot of really killer drummers that never get mentioned. So yeah, there's definitely, I think, you know, both of those, you said, is his name Aaron Sterling? Mm-hmm. He and Steve Jordan both have very unique styles. You know, yeah, they're, like you, they're very different from each other, actually. Yeah, which is cool. You know, you think about that. They're playing kind of with the same lead guy, right? John Mayer, you know, but their styles are very different. And I would say that's 100% true when we play with you as opposed to when we play with um, Justin. Uh, Calhoun was one of the guys we play with. That, But there's been, you know, they've said... We've had different bass players that play with us when we play with you. They say, oh, okay, this is your guys' style. Right. Like, you guys mesh with this guy. And there, I'm sure there's something to be said about how long we've kind of been in it with each other. But mm-hmm. there's also a stylistic thing that fits there. And there's something different that happens when um, we play with another drummer. You know, because mm-hmm. because even I think a lot of people don't realize it, especially with drummers and probably with bassists, is that there's like a style still, even mm-hmm. though you guys are kind of the backbone or the, you know, the tortilla that holds the burrito together. <laughs> yeah. You know, you think how special could a tortilla be? Right. But really it, it makes a big difference what you guys do. And it, I remember um, We Got Love, which is one of our most popular songs. Mm. Uh, you added this new beat to it just like, it was like two years ago or yeah. maybe... Yep. More more recent, but it just gave that thing a whole new life and it made it so that we could play it almost in a different part of the set that was like more upbeat. And right. I and, and now to me that's like the quintessential drum beat for that song. Yeah. You know? But it's weird because when we recorded it and when we first envisioned it, we never saw that. You know, that we had a different guy playing it or um, you know, even what we imagined before we even had anybody else on the track. It, Mm. it was completely different. So for you to add that, it, it's like this kind of like magic recipe where it's like you said, you know, you as a percussionist, you're trying to play something that doesn't make people necessarily tune out to everything else and check into what you're doing. Right. But at the same time, you're playing something interesting enough to where if you had a drummer out in the crowd, he would be zoned in on you and be interested mm. in what you're doing you know yes and that's that's the same kind of thing um you know nick's always telling me and i tell him the same thing about playing guitar nick will tell me man do those vocal runs like just you know get full control and just run around go low to high and mm-hmm. and i always tell him you know i i hear a lot of artists like that and to me what happens when i hear that is I kind of get desensitized to when it happens. Right. So if you get a guy like, um, you got Ariana Grande, for example. She's not a guy. (laughs) Right. Ariana Grande. She's a good example of this, though. Yeah, she's all over the place, and it's incredible what she does. And I I love her music, but um, 
I shouldn't say I love it. I really like her music. Right. But the whole time, through every track, she's running up and down her range and mm-hmm. she's bouncing all around. So that so when it happens, especially live, you you don't go, whoa. Right. Like they held back for the purpose of holding back and you know, keeping control of the song. And then when it was time, they did it. Mm-hmm. You know, they ran around and and Nick and I talk about that all the time. He, he does the same thing with guitar. Nick is literally one of the best guitar players I know, and I know a lot of them. But he doesn't just, every chance he gets, every time the vocals stop, he doesn't just like pull out a Jimi Hendrix, you know? Right. He well, waits. I think some good advice that we got was play like you always have more up your sleeve. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies to vocals or anything because you're right. Like when you get to that place, whether it's live or on the recording, it just stands out that much more when you do something that's a little bit more polished or shiny. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, the whole time is just, you're kind of overloaded with that that same thing. You know, it'd be like riffing over the entire track. And it's like, I used to do that though. You know, when we first started playing, we played in a lot of these dive bars and four-hour shows. And it's like, man. <laughs> you gotta stay you awake. Know, yeah, I'm playing the same solo in a different key yeah. in like 10 different songs. And I felt like it kind of plateaued. And I was like, why am I playing this much guitar over mm. the track? Like, what am I, who am I trying to prove something to, you know? Mm-hmm. And when we finally got to that point where we didn't have to do that, it was good. I was just going to say, uh, I'm glad you brought this up. One of the most impressive things when I'm watching a band play, or I, it's harder to harder to pick it out on a track, but in a live performance, people have the tendency to, you know, show off just because of the energy or whatever. But one of the most impressive things to me is when you can tell that they have so much left that they could give, but they're making yeah. a choice, you know, right. like just in terms of control, like to be able to just shred on a guitar takes a lot of control, but I think it takes more control to be able to do that and not, and know like what the song needs and play what the song needs and, Right, because you're right. Like if they're just constantly every guitar solo is a face melter, then mm-hmm. it loses its it loses its punch, you know. And in a right. live show setting, when you're the way that I think of live shows is is really based on directing energy. And so, if the whole show has the same amount of energy, even if it's super high energy, you you become numb, right? Mm-hmm. Like. To a certain degree, at least I think. So there has to be some sense of tension and resolution and build and climax. And I feel like those really big, even if it's on a a more localized scale, like song to song, I feel like the times that you really let it loose should be at a climactic point in the song and not just every verse, you know, showing everyone your vocal chops or, you know... Mm -hmm. If you're if you're playing chops on the drums during a verse, you're you're probably going to get fired. So just a, right. yeah, a word of caution. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Ty always talks about this thing, uh, and I don't know if he coined this phrase or not, but he always talks about this thing called the W, and uh, it's how you build the set. And I think if you have mm-hmm. those those peaks and then those valleys, it really makes a difference in your show mm-hmm. rather than just the same exact energy the whole time you you kind of tune out whether it's high or low um but when you have those when you have the w you know it's like 
you're ex- you're experiencing every part of the emotion the emotional spectrum by like the end of the night you should hit everything right you, know? you should be you should walk out of there probably happy and not crying but right you know what i mean <laughs> i think you a, should go through it all i think a big change happened for us live when we started implementing that and depending on how long the show was you know if we had an hour then we did what was called a v, v. right which is you start high, obviously you drop down as you go and then you end high. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we had like a full show, we're playing like two hours or more, then we wanted to kind of do the W. And I think before we started implementing that, uh, we weren't really connecting with people while we were playing music. It kind of felt like we were just playing songs in any random order. And, right. you know, you might like... You ever been to a wedding where the DJ's playing music and it feels like a love song just like pops up out of nowhere and everybody walks off stage or off the the dance floor? Yeah. Um, that's kind of what felt like was happening. And so I, I, that was a few years back. I was like, we really just got to dig in and figure out how to do this and keep people engaged when we're playing these two hour shows you know part of it was the audience too you know we're playing in those bars and that's where i think we ran into that was we felt kind of like we had this expectation of trying to keep the energy high most of the time and then within the last two years you know after gray come out when we started playing in theaters we're not playing two hours anymore and we're able to you know, really build a show. And I think that made a huge difference. And you're playing to people that are there to see you, not just are at the bar while you're playing. Yeah. Yeah, these people bought tickets. It's an actual venue. They're there to... So they're tolerant of the dips. But if you're playing to a sports bar full of people that are just (laughs) drinking while the game is on too, there's this, you know, they don't want to hear you play a love song. They want to hear you... Yeah play uh she's my cherry pie and and, yeah yeah <laughs> well that was kind of how we cut our chops right i mean yeah. all of us really we were f- literally filling four hours at most That's of these bars and it wasn't like four hours of we get to go out in front with an acoustic guitar and right play some some crooner songs it was like four hours of the fastest most upbeat stuff you could find and some uh, seemed like a lot of covers it was know? mostly covers yeah, yeah. like 80 percent. people i mean people covers. tend to get mad if you play your own music when you're at just a, right. a, a bar yeah, I, you know i think that affected our writing i think when we were back in 2012 2013 when we we're first starting out we we saw that live like you said jake and it was like well i guess we need to write all of our music like kind of like this hybrid classic rock uh bar music we were found ourselves writing more for other people or for those settings rather than authentically writing for ourselves and doing what we actually wanted to do um and i think it took us a little bit of time to kind of get back to that place Mm. and it felt good once we did but um yeah those were long shows. Nobody should ever have to play for four hours. That's just, it's it's uh, brutal. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a trip for sure. There was a couple places where we didn't play long enough, and then the boss was upset. <laughs> and then we had to get, get back up on stage. I actually remember one time um, you guys started playing because 
we you know we usually took like two or three breaks back then you yeah know, for like 10 15 minutes and i remember one time i was over talking to someone like halfway through my drink and i all of a sudden the guy was like hey your band's playing <laughs> and i turned around and the three you guys were just like doing like a blue shuffle and i was Blue's halfway trio. across the place and i was just like <laughs> right uh i gotta go but yeah, that might have been one of the same nights or at least the same venue where we we did get in trouble for not playing i think we were we cut it short by like 10 minutes and we got a finger in the chest and all that and so the funny thing is is you just feel like at those times that those are the biggest most important shows of your life and really they're just lessons and you're like you're learning how to load in you're learning how to interact with people mm. You're learning everything, all these little dynamics that at the time you don't realize you just, you're just trying to like, <laughs> you're just trying to show up and play music right. and you end up picking up all these little things that, you know, seven years later, you're like, oh yeah, looking back now that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that gives you a little bit of a thick skin, right? You know? Right. And then when you leave home and you go play in, in a more national level, um, there's kind of nothing that you, we always joke about that scene in Blues Brothers where they're playing at the honky tonk bar and there's a chain link fence in front of the stage and people are throwing <laughs> beer bottles and food. Yeah. And like, if you go through that kind of that um, animosity and just knowing as a band that starts out in the uh, middle of Nebraska, hoping that you're meant to travel more of a national stage that this is not the be-all, end-all in those bars. I mean, there was shows we drove two hours away in Nebraska for like 100 bucks, you know, because mm. it was like we had to take everything. We played like two shows a day sometimes. Like sometimes we would play like a retirement home at noon, and then we'd be in a bar that mm -hmm. night, you know, and uh, people requesting like Lincoln Park and right. stuff like that, and we, and we, and we <laughs> you know, we we can't do that stuff. But that made us tough because we f we faced a lot of people that were like just not even happy with what we were doing because mm -hmm. we yeah. weren't we weren't like most of the bands in the area at the time that were just covering everything so that we could make a living making music and but we were selling our souls you know we right. didn't do that we were like okay we'll play your covers we'll give you what you want but now you got to listen to us play one of our songs right and if we don't end up coming back here then we're just going to have to bite bite that you right. know and it was i think that was one of the best things that could have happened to us starting out was having people uh, not really like us at some points and then <laughs> and at some points um, it was always that one show where there'd be, you know, like 20 people where like there'd be a small group or maybe even one or two people that came up and said, I loved you guys' originals. And mm. I think before we were even able to really play well and and speaking for myself, sing well, I remember we were playing in, uh, I think we we're in Kansas. This guy came up and said, you know, even if you guys... It was almost like a backhanded compliment. Even if you guys can't perform like this and tour like this, your songwriting is good <laughs> enough to where you could sell your songs. And so instead of taking that and going like, this guy's a dick, like he, he just told me I wasn't a Even good though singer. you guys suck, your songs are really yeah. good. <laughs> I, I internalize that and then I go, okay, 
if I'm a good enough songwriter, I'm going to get to be as damn good singer as I can. Mm. And then anybody that listens to us in the future will say, these guys have the trifecta or whatever. Right. You know, the lyrics are good. The vocals are good. And it usually comes down. You have to have a good drummer, good vocals, and good lyrics. Who told us that, brother? Someone told us that one time. Yeah, and Carney. And I think it's I think it's very accurate. And I think that's why we like playing with Jake. Like Nah. You know, I was you just get, gonna say, when are you gonna somebody, get the good drummer? Yeah. <laughs> just not kidding. not you, there's another Jake. Oh yeah. But uh okay. we <laughs> we have we have this sort of um this like unspoken understanding when we get on stage of all right, what does the song need? And I think a mm. lot of it comes down to reading the room and reading kind of that night um, what the expectation is. Because I think we talked about this on one of the other podcasts, but I think you try to go in sometimes expecting the same show as the night before and you kind of start to strive for that. But really it's kind of a reset every night. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I remember there was a show, we were playing this one like three or four hour, you know, bar gig type thing again. Uh, way back when and I think one of the funniest things I remember was this lady came up to the front stage you know she's she's an older lady she's really you know really sweet but she came up to the stage um, kind of made her way up to the front and when we stopped we ended a song uh, we're getting ready to start another one she come up to Tyler and she goes <laughs> hey do you guys take requests and Tyler's like well it depends what it is but you know what do you got and she goes turn it down and she, <laughs> she turns around and walks off and we both just look at each other and we lost it we're like this is how the night's gonna go That's we're in the room this is the night now tonight's about us tonight's about we'll have probably an extra beer tonight and laugh this off yeah and it's you run into those nights back when you're just trying to figure out how to play a show mm. and you take those things to heart or you can just let them roll and i think Tyler, Tyler and I have always been a little bit scrappy when it comes to that stuff, but we've learned that it doesn't do anybody any good if you hold on to hold on to it too long. Right. Um, I'm probably more guilty of that, but I think it's easier to to just be like, "All right, all right, lady." Yeah. <laughs> Thank. Thankfully, Nick and I have never been aggressive with the audience at the same time. Some people are you know, though. I, I, I've seen it. Oh, I've, yeah, I've, it's, I've, really I've, it's really awkward. It's really awkward when s- artists are calling people out in the crowd. I've, I've, you shouldn't do that. I've seen some good friends chew people out, and you just look around. You're in the audience while mm-hmm. they're up on stage, and you're just like, uh, "Nobody wants you to do this right now." <laughs> you know? I, yeah. yeah, that's just that's a thing you too you learn too is um, nobody cares about you, right? You know. I, that, at uh, those places. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is I think someone looks at you and there's a there's probably 10 guys out of a crowd of 50. Yeah. You know, back then that could play guitar. And so they look up at you while you're playing and they're out with their girl or whatever and they're having drinks or at the bar and they think it's not better than me. Right. Well, when you get to the point, I think one of the hardest transitions for all of us was when we started doing these ticketed shows and getting into these actual venues, you know you're loading into a theater with a team and you're putting on an actual show rather than setting up in the corner of a bar somewhere for four hours. And I think that made the difference for us because um, it also let people know that they were coming to get a show and they weren't just going to come and 
you know, it was getting to the point where we had people come out to these bars and we're playing three or four hours and, and people are just getting, they're getting pissed off at some of the other people because they're just, they're drunk or the TV's too loud or right. the football game's on. And it's like, all right, we need to put on a show. We need to really change our perspective on how we go about this. And when we got into that mindset, I think that that really changed a lot of stuff. You know, when we really, we released Gray and Ghost Talker and we really moved into that realm, it was a lot more fun too. And we saw, you know, we got the feedback and just the people's experience overall was like, all right, these guys just aren't like some bar band from Nebraska. They're out here putting on shows and it's a whole different ball game. So right. that's been really fun. Which made this year hard because we were kind of getting into that a lot more. And, um, you know, we've taken this time off to kind of prepare for the shows that are upcoming to work on new music. But yeah, I do miss that part of it for sure. Do you guys feel like so we talked about kind of musical influences, but do you have influences in terms of what your show looks like? Because I, I think of like bands that I've seen play live that their show structure and the performance itself was terrible, but I really like the band. And then on the flip side of that coin is there's bands that, you know, I sort of liked and then I saw them play live and it completely transformed my opinion of them. Have you guys been influenced in any way by specific artists or bands as, as far as how you portray your live show? Um, I used to be a big fan of Ben Rector and, Mm. um, I think after I saw him, play live I actually kind of a weird thing happened where I didn't like him as much anymore really and I think one of the things I learned I think we went to see him in Kansas City before you were there Jake yeah it it was like me and Nick went but um the biggest thing I took away from it is that it he was like watering down the show the whole time Mm. and I think he was trying to be genuine and and maybe he was maybe that is how he is and that's probably how he is but during the show the whole time i felt like i with all the lights and his big band and he's a great songwriter and the music was captivating i was totally enthralled while he was playing songs and then it would be like he he would get done playing and it would be like i would get like sucked out and Mm. it was at like the ben rector talk show right you know and and you know I'm, if he listens to this, I'm sorry, but it was just one of those things. Like as an entertainer, I went away from that thinking, okay, I don't want to do that. Mm. Like I don't want people to be sucked out of the show for the sake of them feeling like at home. Right. You know, I should be able to do that with the music and brief conversation in mm. between songs. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite bands to. Uh, that did it right for me was Need to Breathe yep. because they just rock show from the beginning to end, lights and even the slow songs. Like he didn't feel like he had to get up there and just, you know, their lead bear. He didn't just have to talk the whole right. time. And um, one other one too that comes to mind, hopefully I'm leaving some for you, brother, but uh, we watched Drew Holcomb mm-hmm. and the neighbors out in Oregon and he was kind of this in between Ben Rector and Need to Breathe where it was like the show was really good but he was like 
he kind of charmed everybody yeah. in between. And I was like, okay, this is what I like. Like I sort of feel like there were some songs, they'd play three songs in a row and he wouldn't say much. Mm-hmm. But when he did, it was super funny and super dry. Mm-hmm. Like I love dry humor and I don't care. He's hilarious if people don't, too. I don't care if people don't like dry humor. Right. You know, like if I say something after I get done, we get done with the song, I, I don't care. Right. If you don't think it's funny. I said it because I think it's funny. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife always says, you think you're funny. I'm like, well, yeah, that's why I said the joke <laughs> because I think it's yeah. funny. But anyway, it was those kind of like, but that's, this is a whole nother thing. And brother, go on and say who you like and who's influenced you. But one thing I just wanted to touch on was it sort of makes you feel like you can't watch a show without picking it apart. Like yep. you pick your part and then you just eat that guy alive yep. all night. You know what yep. I mean? So it's not really fair to them. So so everything I just said, you know, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying I look at those guys in a different light than probably most people do. Yeah. You know, if you're talking front man, that's my guy. So you better just make my ticket worth it. Mm-hmm. I better laugh. I better not feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I better just have a good time. But go on, brother. So you, you have high expectations is what you're saying. Yes. No, I'm kidding. Of myself. I think, it, I think it is hard when you are an entertainer as well and you, you watch it from front of house. Um, I always love like at festivals and stuff or just if we have an opener or we're opening for somebody watching a show from side stage or their perspective um it kind of helps me feel like i i don't have these like these grand expectations of trying to be an audience member it has kind of a different effect on me where i feel like i wonder what i would do or oh i really like that or just hearing the banter backstage or the way that they interact behind the mic you can hear them yell something at the drummer or Mm -hmm crack a joke you know and i i love that stuff um i think one of the coolest transitions i watched was uh, colony house they came to omaha back when we were living there so you know over six years ago and they played to like 15 people yeah. at the waiting room and you could tell it was like a tuesday night and you could tell that it was just a stop mm-hmm. you know it was just for them it was just another live practice right and they put on this show and it was like they still played, um, but they didn't play it like they were playing to 500 people. Right. They just, they really played to the room, but they still did their thing. And then fast forward, uh, I got to see them at Red Rocks. And man, like the difference in the venue really, really matters. But it's also, you know, a good front man and a good band can really read the crowd in the room. And obviously if it's at Red Rocks, it's, not really comparable to any other venue but um i think hearing their stuff live you know i was like this is you know it's pretty good and then i saw i saw their show at red rocks and i just was blown away Mm. um and i saw them play in portland too and it was the same thing like their transitions were huge and that's where like that's where it's all at for me is like ty said like when you get to that point I think him and I are both, we both have a hard time with that. We kind of look over at each other. And I remember in Kansas City thinking the same thing. We're talking to each other like, ah, it's just, it's uncomfortable. Mm. Like you don't want to create that for anybody. Kind of looking at each other, 
but when I saw, you know, Colony House play or a band like the Wild Feathers, I remember seeing them at the Bourbon oh, Theater. They, they did the same thing. It's just Rock wherever there needs to be a pause, there is. And then the rest of the show just flows. You never, yep. you never pull your phone out. You never look around the room. You're, you're always content. Just mm-hmm. eyes on the stage. Somebody's doing something. But um, one of the hardest shows for me to probably top would be John Mayer in Kansas City. Mm. Um, I've seen him at Red Rocks like three or four times. But this specific show in Kansas City, uh, we were like, I think maybe eight or ninth row, just dead center. And the way that he performed that night, there was something about where we were in the audience, but also how his entire show flowed from the old stuff that he's had. He pleased the entire crowd from people that have been there since he started, but he also did what he wanted with his new stuff. And I think that's the mark of a good artist when, man, you're paying money to go and like Ty said, you know, like make your ticket worth it. it. It was really cool to see that happen. And I think that that's important to do because, you know, even stuff that we've written a long time ago, um, we still try to, inter- you know, I think we do a good job infusing it. But there's also part of you that's like, man, I've played this song like 9,000 times. Right. Yep. And I'm having a hard time feeling like I did when I very first wrote it, but you still do it and you just got to find a way to make it work. Whether Jake, like, you know, add in a different rhythm to We Got Love or Mm. adding something that's a little fresh to kind of help the song evolve and change with you as an artist, but still being able to play it. I think that's probably one of my favorite things playing live. So uh, now that I spilled my guts, Jake, (laughs) what do you got? Well, it's funny, all all of the artists that we've mentioned or artists that I was going to mention. Um, I can actually consolidate most of them into one show. A few years ago, I saw Colony House, Need to, or Colony House, Drew Holcomb, Ben Rector, and Need to Breathe all at the same show. What? Yeah, in Kansas City. Dude, Kansas City has great shows. I'm, I'm just going to yeah. go out there and say it when it's, right. when it's open. The city's open. Um, there's some good stuff happening here, but... Where'd you see him? Varsity Theater? I saw him at Grinders, which is this uh, out, oh, outdoor yeah. venue here um, right downtown, which is super dope. Um, it was actually, once when Need to Breathe started playing, they had this going for them. It started to mist, so they all their lights turned into lasers, essentially. So it was just like oh, twice as immersive. It was super cool. But um, I do, I wanted to talk about specifically Drew Holcomb because I saw him another time in Lawrence at uh, just some theater. He played with Devin Gilfillian. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah really good. And it's kind of interesting just how different um, different live shows just have different styles. Like the Need to Breathe experience is very um, visceral. Like there's a lot. It's kind of like I was talking about last week, um, just like the sensory overload, but in a good way. Like they've got all the mm-hmm. lights. They've got the backing tracks, they've got the theatrics and all that stuff down because they're they're on that caliber now. Um, mm-hmm. But Drew Holcomb, like his style is the very like, I can relate to this guy, you know, like not, he's not a rock star. I don't think he's trying to be a rock star, but you know, yep. 
So it would be weird if he had this weird, like, or this big, you know, light show to go with his music. None of his music really calls for that. But one of my favorite albums, and we could do a whole other episode on how I feel about like live albums, but one of my favorite overall albums is Drew Holcomb Live at the Ryman. Just because mm-hmm. like that that album start to finish is really my gold standard for like that level of a singer songwriter style um, artist because they've got the perfect direction of energy. Like there's a section in the middle where he and his wife just do three or four songs and oh I didn't see that yeah I, I was listening to it um yeah she doesn't normally go with them anymore because they've got kids but because this show was in Tennessee and it was like this very special show for them. They did a few together and the, um, the song that she comes out on is hung the moon, I think. And I was listening to it the other day and I had my, I was listening to it through my in-ears and just like when she comes out, they did this, this cool thing where they built up the tension, like everyone in the crowd, you're like, what song is this? What's happening right now? And then she comes out and everyone erupts like, I don't know. It just, it gives me goosebumps, just little things like that. Just little moments. Mm. It's not this big theatrical thing, but they thought out, how are we going to do this and make it cool? And you know, it's scripted to a point, but it, it evokes an emotional response from everyone. So Mm. I think, I think they do for being, um, you know, not relying on these big light shows and backing tracks and all these things. They do a really, really good job of, pulling emotion out of people and building and resolving in a really cool way. Um, yeah. But that being said, Need to Breathe puts on a killer show. I've seen them yeah. a couple times, <laughs> and it's, every time I see them play, they're doing something new and different. They play they play the song Something Beautiful different every single time, which that's like, oh, that's one of those songs that I'm sure they're just tired of playing, so they have to make it fun every time. But I love seeing yeah. how they can spin it every time, and then... Also, John Mayer, I've seen a couple times, and he's just on another level. Like, there's a difference between um, arena shows and just, like, normal venue shows, too. And he's playing in arenas, so he's got, you know, the big multi-screen display and all these, like, video-synced stuff. But it's always flawless. And I love knowing that bands put in a bunch of pre-production work, like they do multiple weeks of just running the show with all the lights and everything before oh, yeah. they ever they ever take it out. So um yeah. yeah yeah those are those all those bands, Drew Holcomb, Need to Breathe and John Mayer are like my gold standard of good performances. Yeah. Well we agree there. All that those guys are great. Yep. And their recordings are great mm-hmm. too. Just really good. Mm-hmm. All right guys. Well this was a fun one. I'm glad that this was episode Whoa. ten. That was has it yeah, been hour ten minutes? I had a, a lot time. more. I had a lot more stuff to say. <laughs> well, maybe we can do a part two. <laughs> I'm sure. All right, this Ooh. is an easy, uh, easy topic for us to beat to death. But um, that's a good idea. Yeah. So uh, thanks everyone for listening. Episode ten. We've been at this ten weeks. Similar vein podcast. Be sure to comment, rate, and subscribe if you haven't already. Um, hit us up on Instagram with things that. You might want to hear us ramble on about for an hour and pretend like we know what we're talking about, but um, mostly just thank you for sticking with us for 10 weeks. This is awesome. Yeah. This is the longest relationship I've ever been in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love you guys. All right. See you, everybody. Bye, everybody.